0: Greg. Hello there. How are you doing? I'll let you take over from here. I'll, I'll try. I'll try. <laughs> Hello, little else. How are you doing this morning? Good to see you all this morning. I uh, always have called this uh, the, the poor man's service because all the rich folks are out of the cabin, yeah, but uh, <laughs> we're the real laborers here. All right. We get more righteousness points. Good deal. Good deal. It's just good to be here. You can always tell that, that there was a, a special anointing. Don't you think they're in that worship set? You know, because the the, the drums brings the anointing. Y'all know that, right? The, the drums are the key. So you got to have a sanctified drummer if you're going to have a good worship set. That's and and a modest one. That's important too. Hey, I, I want to give you a little update here. Uh, last, a central part of our vision. We think it's the center of the kingdom. A central aspect of the kingdom is that uh, it has to do with reflecting God's heart for the poor and the homeless, the marginalized, disenfranchised, and and you just see it throughout the Bible. And uh, so that's always been a front on the front burner of our vision of what we're called to do. So last December, we had a campaign uh, called Making Space. We're beginning to raise money to transform this space that God has given us into, into a, uh, a center that could serve uh, the homeless and the poor. Our, our ultimate goal is to take amen. Uh, I know you guys are on board with this because we were aiming to raise about twenty five thousand dollars and we ended up raising one hundred and six thousand so I know you guys you get pumped with this kind of thing ah, that 's great and so the goal the goal is to transform eventually uh, and it 's going to be a lot of work, but that, that whole north end we've got one hundred thousand square feet and we'd like to use every square inch of it in a way that serves uh, the homeless and the poor and people are unemployed and and poverty and who are hungry and, and things of that sort. So this was a, a first step in that direction. It was a very good first step. And I want to give you just a little update on where we are at with all of that. One of the things we wanted to do was to um, participate in what is called Project Home, where you turn your church into a homeless shelter at night um, and do that a couple times a year for a whole month. And um, so we raised up money to bring our, this facility up to code. We thought we had done that, but we learned that there are some things that we weren't told initially that we still have to do that are um, complicated and rather expensive. So that's still in process. Just keep that in prayer. We really want to be able to do that. Um, we are just on the verge of signing, uh, partnering with a, a ministry called American Community Services to have a food shelf at this location um, to help people who don't have enough food. Amen. <laughs> It's a huge thing. Uh, that should be starting October 1st. We're also uh, going to be hosting here a uh, job, st- job skills training program uh, to give people skills to get jobs uh, that they can actually live off of. Minnesota's known for having a lot of jobs, um, but they're flipping burgers and you can't live off of it, especially if you've got a family uh, to feed. In fact, five five or six years ago, Minnesota, and this state still, still may be true, I don't know, but we had the highest rate of full-time working homeless people because we had a lot of jobs, but they, you can't live off them. So we want to give skills, uh, training for people to get better jobs, that uh, career jobs that you can live off of. So we're going to be uh, hosting that here. And that program actually will be starting uh, September 17th. And that's just a huge uh, thing. Uh, we're also going to be having here, um, starting October 1st, we haven't quite... Uh, got this absolutely finalized, but we're right on the verge of it. We're going to be partnering with a a group called Close to My Heart and hosting a daycare center here, drop-in daycare center here, and it specializes in... um, It's it's beautiful. Uh, Their their heart is for uh, diversity and for kids with special needs and for uh, families who are in in poverty. And... um, uh, and, and so we want to be hosting that here. And it'll be beautiful. We start this um, on uh, October 1st as well. But see, this way, folks can come here for the job training, and the daycare center is right here for them. So they don't have to be out trying to find their own daycare. Um, and it's a little... Amen. It's fantastic. It's a little example of the kind of thing we want to have here, where it's a one-stop shop thing. We'd like to eventually be having legal services for people, uh, and counseling for people, and, uh, chemical abuse, uh, groups for, for people, and legal support for people. I mean, just everything we can do to, to have it here and to be serving. It's all about manifesting God's love, uh, towards folks who are in need. And so we're partnering with a whole lot of groups to do this. We're not going to try to do it ourselves. We're, we're, we're trying to build alliances with everybody. And it's complicated, and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's quite a feat, but, um, it's going to happen. And uh, I just appreciate all you guys being on board with this, sacrificing for this, and uh, uh, praying for this. Okay, well, we, oh, I want to say, before I get going, uh, a thanks to Steve Wines, who did such an incredible job last week. That was absolutely fantastic. He's, uh, he's a gift. He's just a gift. I, just, I love that guy. I love Dave Johnson. I love our friendship with the open door and uh, our friendship with the meeting house. We're just getting uh, a network built here, and uh, it's good to have folks who can come in and, and do such a... a, a A great job. Really appreciate it. I was out at Mars Hill, that crazy church, and and having a lot of fun out there, but it's always good to be back here. I want to wrap up today this uh, three-part, unplanned, very choppy series that we've been in. Choppy because we've been having other services in between each message, but this is just what's been on my heart. I took a break to talk about faith and doubt because I'm working on a book on that, a book that was due yesterday. (laughs) Not quite done yet. I'm in trouble too, but uh, I, I'm almost there. I'm almost there. I'm going crazy on it, but I, it's just something I'm passionate about because I think there's so much misunderstanding about what faith is. A lot of people are barred from the kingdom because they they think they don't, What they're told faith is is something they can't do, because a lot of people think that faith is about making yourself certain of things, not having any kind of doubts about things, uh, believing things uh, that you think your salvation hangs on and. So I've, I've been in this series trying to blow apart what I've been calling the strength tester model of faith. And this is the model of faith that says you can test your strength by your level of certainty. It assumes that your, the strength of your faith is measured by how certain you are, or how doubt-free you are about things. And it, it, it construes salvation as a matter of trying to make yourself more certain about things. And if you hit a sufficient level of certainty, well, then God saves you. And if you don't, well, then you're lost. And I've just been trying to blow that thing sky high because I don't think it's biblical and it causes a whole lot of problems. It's widespread. I mean, I think this is what the majority of people think faith is. But it just causes, it raises a whole culture of people who try to make themselves certain of things and who who are afraid of doubt. And um, to reduce faith to a sort of psychological gimmick in the head where you're doing what the Wizard of Oz lion did. You know, I do believe, I do believe, I do, I do, I do believe. And you're just trying to convince yourself of stuff. I think it's just dysfunctional. And uh, it's not biblical. The biblical model of faith we've seen, it starts with raw honesty, a commitment to be honest. No pretending. Uh, Just collapse that game right now. No performing, no trying to make yourself more certain than you are. It's about dealing dealing with reality. And and so we've seen here that the kind of faith that the Bible calls us to is, is the faith of an Israelite. Jacob was called Israel, renamed Israel, because the word means he wrestled with God. He had the audacity to wrestle with God. And that's what an authentic faith is about. It's not about having all the answers and being certain of all the answers. It's about a commitment to be honest with God. But it's also about a commitment to trust and to be trustworthy. It's a covenantal concept, we saw, where you pledge your trust to another and pledge to walk trustworthy before another. And it's not just about beliefs uh, or, or about how certain you are about beliefs. It's, it's uh, even more about be, being willing to act on your beliefs. It does, biblical faith doesn't strive for certainty, it strives for faithfulness in the midst of uncertainty, because the truth is that there isn't any certainty about things, uh, but it's about pledging to walk trustworthy on the basis of, uh, of, of your faith, and uh, on the basis of how confident you are. What's important is not your, that you're certain, but that you're confident enough to commit your life to going in a certain, cor- a certain direction, and uh, wrestling on the way. That's, that's what biblical faith is, is all about. So I want to uh, today end by uh, talking about uh, several of the verses that we started with a couple weeks ago uh, that are used to support this strength tester model of faith, that are almost always appealed to. And then I want to segue into uh, dealing with uh, a kind of an instruction uh, from Scripture on how to actually do faith, how to actually, in your head, uh, practice faith. So I want to read from Mark chapter 9, verse 29, where Jesus simply says, according to your faith, be it unto you. This is one of the passages, you might recall, where uh, this lady read this passage before we were praying for this guy with brain cancer. And the idea is that if we can just get ourselves certain enough, well, then the guy will be healed. But if we don't, he's going to die. According to your faith, be it unto you. Another passage that we uh, looked at a couple weeks ago was uh, Jesus when he says, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Be so certain, it seems like he's saying, that you've, it's, it's, it's as good as done, and it'll be yours. And these two verses combined together are what really have motivated a lot of this strength tester faith mindset, and so I want to deal with those, and then I'll deal with what uh, faith actually is here. And remember, as I'm going through this, uh, I'm going to try to leave 10 minutes or so at the end for questions, so text in your questions, um, whatever arises that pertain to this topic, uh, however strictly or loosely, we'll, we'll try to get to them. And we'll have a time to uh, get to it at the end of the service. Okay, pray with me here for a moment. So, Abba, Father, I thank you, God, that you're a God who uh, is not impressed with performance or with gimmicks or, or anything of the sort, but you're a God who deals with reality and you want honesty and you want truth. And I pray, God, that this message would just come out true and that you'd anoint it. For everybody in this auditorium or listening through podcasts or television, I just pray, God, you'd open our hearts and open our minds to receive your word deeply be instructed, and to be set free from any lies we may have believed, to be the people you called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said, amen. amen, amen, all right. Let me first talk about this passage in Mark, where Jesus says, when you ask, believe that you have received it, and it will be done for you. I shared some time ago about this friend I had at Princeton, I met him at Princeton, and he told me when he was... Um, in undergraduate school at Rice University, he got involved in this uh, Word of Faith group. Some of you know about this group, this theology, where it's sometimes called uh, the the Word of Faith movement or the Name It and Claim It uh, crowd, the Positive Confession crowd. And the idea is that it's sort of the most intense version of the strength tester faith where you believe that if you just have enough certainty, you can ask God for anything and it will be given to you. And that it's a Christian's right to always be healthy and to always be prosperous, always be wealthy. The health and wealth gospel it's sometimes called. So he got involved in this movement. Now, the thing was is that this guy had coke bottle glasses and he was almost legally blind. Just had enough sight to be able to drive, but uh, really needed those glasses. But in this movement, they were taught that if you believe firmly enough, if you believe you have received, then it will be done for you. And if you really believe you have received healing for your eyesight, then you wouldn't wear glasses. So he took off his glasses and went around telling people, I'm healed, I'm healed. Because he has to believe he has already received it. And in the course of the next four months, he gets in three car accidents and uh, almost compl- flunks out of school. Uh, not a good idea. It wasn't until his father got him in to see a psychiatrist that uh, uh, he was finally able to get talked out of that, that, that belief system. But it makes sense. If you believe you have received it, well then... I have, to, I have to pretend like I can see when actually I can't. But my only hope of ever seeing is to act like I've already received this. This, this passage, if we, if we interpret it literally, it, it can cause a lot of harm. I mean, thankfully, no one got killed in those car wrecks this guy was in. But he's a Mr. Magoo out there. <laughs> you know, he can't see past the hood of his car. And I have personally, I, I mean, I could tell you some horror stories. I'm sure some of you know some horror stories of people who took that verse literally and then therefore didn't go to the doctor. Or I know one couple in northern Minnesota who didn't bury their daughter because they were acting on this verse. We want to believe that she's been raised from the dead. And so we have to believe we've already received it, so we're not going to bury her for crying out loud. No, we have to believe it, we've already received it. It's caused a lot of damage. But there's a number of indications in, in, in the Bible that tell us that this verse was not meant to be taken literally. For one thing, if you take this passage literally, you can't possibly obey it. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. When you ask, believe that you have already received. Well, which is it? Because if I believe I've already received it, I'm not going to ask for it. If I ask for it, it presupposes that I don't believe I've already received it. So there's no way to obey this command. It's a catch-22 command. uh, If you take it literally, it becomes absurd, which is one indication that it's not to be taken literally. A second thing is that Jesus himself didn't operate this way. You never find Jesus going around trying to tell people to make themselves certain or to think that they've already received something that they haven't received. He, He never operates this way. So if he meant this teaching in Mark 11 to be literal, well, then he's a hypocrite because he doesn't obey his own teaching. So in Mark 8, for example, one of these real strange passages of the Bible uh, Jesus, it says, took this blind man outside the village, and uh, it says that he prayed for him, and he spit into the guy's eyes. He spit into his eyes, and then he laid his hands on him and asked, do you see anything? I've always said here, uh, we need to follow Jesus' example in all things. Um, <laughs> Dave, come up here. Let's, let's test this out. <laughs> <laughs> It's so bizarre! Why would Jesus do that? And then he says, you know, can you see anything? And the guy's probably thinking, no, you just lugered in my eyes. How am I supposed to see anything? You I've got to clean up my eyes, I'll see something. It's a very bizarre thing. I have no idea why Jesus did that. Uh, it's just one of those odd things. But what interests me right now is that uh, Jesus asked him the question, can you see anything? Because he wouldn't have asked that if he was obeying his own teaching in Mark 11 and taking it literally. He should have said... Now, just go out and, and, and believe that you've already received your eyesight. To ask the question, do you see anything, is to ask him, have you received anything, which presupposes he's not believing that he's already received it. You feel my point here, right? Um, and uh, so Jesus is a hypocrite because he's not practicing what he preaches if he meant that literally. And since I don't think the Son of God was a hypocrite, uh, I really don't think the passage is supposed to be taken literally. Plus, it turns out the guy couldn't see. Not, not, not perfectly anyways, because he says, I see people walking around like, like trees. Really bizarre. Uh, and Jesus doesn't rebuke him for not confessing that he already received it. Jesus says, well, let's just pray again. And so he goes back to it. It's kind of encouraging to me that even Jesus sometimes had to go back uh, and praying for a person uh, more than once. But uh, Jesus didn't himself operate that way. That's an indication that the passage isn't meant to be taken literally. A third thing is that it's always important to read every verse of the Bible in the context of the whole Bible. It should never be isolated. That, that, that can be a very dangerous Thing That leads to a lot of misunderstanding. And if you zoom out and look at the whole Bible, you'll find that this teaching is qualified in a lot of ways. I mean, the way, if you take it literally and in isolation from the rest of the Bible, it looks like Mark eleven twenty four 24 is saying that we should just try to convince ourselves we've already received it, and then it'll be given to us. But if you zoom out, you'll see that that is qualified in a lot of ways. For example, we read in uh, uh, Matthew 18, Jesus says, If two of you will agree on earth concerning anything then it will be given to you by my Father in heaven. If two of you... Well, you didn't hear anything about numbers in the other in the Mark 11 passage. That's interesting. You didn't mention anything about numbers there. Here's If two are gathered. In uh, another passage in, in, in 1 John, he says that here's our confidence, that if we ask anything uh, according to God's will, according to God's will, it will be done for us. Well, that, that wasn't mentioned in the earlier passage. It says ask anything and, and, and believe you received it and it will be done. So these verses qualify what we read in Mark 11. In fact, I I, uh, discuss this in my book, Is God to Blame? I have a whole chapter on this where if you look at the whole Bible, you'll find that as a matter of fact, there's a multitude of variables, a multitude of factors that go into determining uh, the extent to which your prayer will be answered or the extent to which your faith will, will bring about certain results. God's will is one of the factors determining whether your faith will or whether your prayer will will be answered the way you're praying it. Uh, God's will is one variable, but it's not the only one because uh, the faith of the person praying is another variable, but it's not the only one. The faith of the person you're praying for is another variable in some passages, but it's not the only one. The number of people praying is one variable, but it's not the only one. Uh, the persistence of the people praying is sometimes mentioned as a variable. Uh, the, uh, the the fervency of the people praying is sometimes mentioned as a variable. Uh, the spiritual forces that are against you, because there's a warfare going on uh, uh, above us. That's a variable that affects the outcome of our prayers. Uh, The strength of the forces that are against us. The numbers of the forces against us. And the strength of the numbers of the forces that are for us. Uh, we're participating in warfare whenever we pray. All of that factors into the extent to which our prayer is going to be answered uh, or the thing that we're having faith for is going to be answered. Then there's the, the, the sin of the people in people's lives that you're praying for. And then there's also the free will of people and the free will of angels. All these things factor into what comes to pass. In fact, as I argue and is God to blame, uh, you'd have to know the entire history of the universe exhaustively to be able to explain anything including the, the, the reason why prayer has the effect it has or doesn't have the, the effect it has. Why is one kid healed and not another person healed? I, we, we don't know because there's so many variables that factor into this going back to the beginning of time, which is why we can never know why things happen the way they do. We, we never can. Not just about prayer, but about anything, good or evil. It, we, our, our knowledge of reality is so myopic, so small. We never know why things happen the way they do, why prayer has the outcome that it has or doesn't have, which is why... Uh, we can never blame people or blame God uh, when things don't come to pass the way that we're praying for them. Um, no, we, we have to leave all... We have, remember what we don't know. Our job is just to obey in the face of all this uncertainty and to press forward. But also is why we can't be certain of how things are going to turn out. When you pray, you don't you can't be certain that you, the person is going to be healed or it's going to have the outcome you're praying for. And the folks who, who, who claim that are usually doing a mental gimmick in their head. They think it shows a lack of faith to even admit the possibility that this prayer won't be healed because they bought into this gimmick <clears throat> model of uh, of faith. So they're trying to make themselves certain, but we don't have to go there. We, we we're not certain unless God gives you a word of knowledge, which He sometimes does. But unless you have a word of knowledge, you don't know what outcome the prayer is going to have. You can know that it's going to have a kingdom effect. You can know that all prayer is powerful and effective. James five tells us that. Um, you can know that you're bringing the kingdom into the situation but you can't know that for certain that that, how the prayer is going to be answered. And you don't need to be certain. You just have to be confident enough that what you're doing is a kingdom thing. And so in faith, you you press forward as you pray. But all of that is one more reason why Mark 11 uh, should not be taken literally. So if Mark 11 isn't telling us that we need to try to psychologically convince ourselves that we've received what we're praying for, then what is it telling us? What is it teaching? I'll say two things about this. We're hitting at some really important stuff here. It has a lot of implications for our life. One is this. Uh, ancient Jews, like uh, most ancient people groups in the Mediterranean area, in the ancient Near East, they made a lot of use of hyperbole. Hyperbole is this exaggerated language. Uh, it was a huge part of their culture, way more than we do. We use hyperbole. Like when, we, when we say, Johnny, I told you a million times not to pick your nose. Uh, well, you weren't counting how many times you told them that, but you're saying i told you too many times! Stop it! Uh, we use exaggerated language. It's a way of emphasizing something. Well, uh, ancient and eastern cultures did this a lot. So the Bible is full of hyperbole. And it's really important to remember that when you read the Bible because one of the main ways that con- modern Christians misunderstand the Bible is that they read into it their literal mindset. And when you take a, a, a hyperbole, an exaggerated statement, that has no qualification... That's what a hyperbole is. There's no qualification, no nuancing. You state, thing, state things in extreme ways. And when you take those things literally, you turn the Bible into a book of magic. Because you think you got a formula here. Oh, if we just do this, believe what we have received. If we just do this, raise up a child in the way that he should go when he's older, they'll never depart from it. You know, if we just do this, according to your faith be done it to you, and you think you have these little formulas, and God turns into be this little genie in a bottle, and the bottle is a the passage and you just rub the passage, and the genie's supposed to pop out and guarantee you things. It doesn't work that way. Remember that there's a lot of extreme statements in Scripture. Jesus taught with a lot of hyperbole all over the place. Maybe the most famous one is in Mark chapter 9, I think it is, or Matthew 9. What is it? I lost my verse of, I had a list of Bible verses up here. I'm going from memory here. This is scary. Uh, It says, If your eye causes you to stumble, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out, because it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. And sadly, there have been people who have taken this literally. When every body part offends you, you've got to cut it off. Um, and historically, it's, I'm trying to think of a delicate way of saying this. Uh, there are some male theologians who are not as masculine as they'd otherwise be because they took this literally. I'll just say it like that. Before the day of anesthesia. Ah! Not, not good. Um, it's not meant to be taken literally. In fact, if you take it literally, it's just—it's stupid. Look, if you're lusting after somebody, don't blame it on your eye. Your eye's not the problem. <laughs> stupid eye. You just cause me to sin all the time. Pluck it out. <laughs> and if your eye was the problem, well, then you better pluck out both because I think you can lust as easily with one eye as you can with two. <laughs> you got one sinful eye and one right- uh, uh, you got righteous one? That left eye is already so sinful, I'll pluck it. Now... Obviously, you're not going to solve anything if you pluck your eye out. You've got to go for both if you're going to go for anything. But see, Jesus knows it's stupid to take this literally, and that's why it works as a hyperbole. It's an exaggerated extreme statement that emphasizes something. It's a way of saying, this is really important. Live with a view towards eternity, Jesus is saying. Well, eternity is far more important than this short little life that we ha- have here. So, so be a disciple of Jesus. Take that seriously, as you always have eternity in view. That's what Jesus is saying, but he doesn't mean it to be taken literally. And that is what's going on here with Mark 11. It's not a literal statement. It's a hyperbolic statement. It's extreme. If you take it literally, it becomes absurd, which is how you know it's a hyperbole. It's not meant to be uh, taken literally. So if it's a hyperbole, then let's ask this question. This is my second point. What is it a hyperbole of? What is the point? Jesus says, when you ask, believe you have received, and it will be done for you. You What is he getting at there? What's the... Points that he's making an extreme statement about. He's not saying we should try to convince ourselves that uh, we already have received it, because that's obviously false. But he is saying this, I believe. He's giving us a lesson on how to do faith, how to do faith. I think what he's getting at here is this. He's saying when you pray, uh, you exercise faith by envisioning what you're praying about as though you'd already received it, envision what you're hoping for as though it was a present reality. It's about a vision that we entertain in our head uh, as we pray, that it's getting at. When you pray, believe you have received. See it as though you have received. This is what, this is what biblical faith is all about. It's about getting a, a, a mental, imaginative vision of the future or the unseen realm. And we envision that as a concrete reality. And we move in that direction. The passage that really makes this, I think, the most clear is Hebrews chapter 11. Uh Verse 1, a famous passage on prayer. Uh, it's just powerful. The King James Version and Webster's Version says this. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The word substance there is hypostasis, and it means substance. It's, that's a really good translation. The, uh, the word that's translated evidence there, cost. it can mean evidence, evidence that brings about a conviction, but it can also mean the conviction that evidence brings about. Uh, And I am convinced it should be translated the second way. That faith is the conviction of things not seen. For one thing, I don't have a clue. I've never understood what it means to say that faith is the evidence of things not seen. What does that even mean? It's one of those things that Christians say all the time, but I don't think anyone has a clue what it means. So far as I can tell, it's incoherent. It doesn't mean anything. It's like some of the songs Christians sing, we sing them, but we don't have, don't... If you ask them, what does that mean? It's like, oh, I don't know, I raised my Ebenezer. I don't know. <laughs> my, my pinky, maybe? I, I don't But see, it makes a lot of sense, as we're going to see here, to say that faith is the conviction of things not seen. So my favorite translation of this is Darby's translation when he says, faith is the substanti- substantiating of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Here's what I think the, is one way of applying this passage. That when we have to exercise faith is to get a, a, a mental picture of what you're praying for as a substantial reality, hypostasis. You see it concretely, vividly, in color, in detail. And that, when you see that, that imaginative thing you're praying for, it creates a conviction and a leg cost, uh, a desire for it, and that motivates you towards it. It pulls you in that direction. It's a neurological fact that the way that we think is by replicating reality on the inside. We don't think with information. When we think, we are taking our experience of the outside world and redoing it in our head, we think with pictures, we think with videos, we think with, with soundtracks, we think with tapes. When you think of somebody right now, you don't get information about them, you see them in your, in your mind, and maybe you hear them, and you have other ways. But, but the same neurons that pop when you're with the person are popping when you think about the person, roughly the same things. Well, that's what faith is all about. And faith is, is then, it, it, it creates a feeling. There's an emotional component to it, there's a neurological fact. That either pulls you towards the person or pushes you away from the, the person. As a matter of fact, we do this all the time. We are, we, this is the way that we think about the future, the way that we think about the past, the way that we think of somebody who's not there. We imagine them. And there's always a feeling component next to that imagination. And nothing but nothing but nothing will determine the direction of your life, the quality of your life, and the kingdom significance of your life, like the tapes and the movies and the soundtracks that you're running between your ears. That's what Jesus is getting at when he says, according to your faith, be it unto you according to your faith be it unto you. And we do this all the time. It's not just a kingdom principle. It's a life principle. Uh, The kingdom faith is just about doing that life principle on on, on kingdom matters. So it's like this. Um, Last Saturday, I'm out there in Grand Rapids, Michigan. uh, Saturday night in my hotel, all by my lonesome, all by myself, no one around, all by myself, without room. Uh. Hey there, lonely boy, lonely boy. Don't you? I would have been really good in the 50s and 60s. I got that falsetto. Two basses. <laughs> Pretty good, huh? <laughs> I was born in the wrong era. I got been great. Frankie Valley. Get, get that on me. That was an ADD moment. Um, so I'm all alone in the hotel room. And I, so I, I think about my wife, my wonderful, beautiful, gorgeous wife. Uh, and, and, uh, I, try to think about her and, and, what's she doing right now and, 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 she's, she's, I think, maybe playing with Max, our little cute little dog, and I can just see her. I get a hoopostasis of her. I, 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 in detail, vividly, real like, I, see her playing with our dog, or, or maybe she's playing with her grandkids, or, or putzing around the house. She likes to putz around the house so much, and it's just so cute. And I get, I get a hoopostasis of this. A concrete reality. I imagine this, and then see that creates a warm feeling warm feeling. I'm getting, I'm getting points right now. <laughs> a, a, a nice warm feeling. And a, nice, a feeling of love, and it pulls me towards her, you see? And re- when I'm doing that, I'm actually exercising faith. I, I don't, I, faith is the substance of things that you hope for. I hope to be with my wife again. And the evidence, the conviction of things not seen, the evidence is the image, alright? And then that brings about a conviction, a leg cause, uh, which, which then moves me in that direction. According to your faith it unto you. The the things you run in your mind create feelings that move your life in a in a certain direction. People with good marriages envision their marriage one way. People with bad marriages also are having faith for a bad marriage, because they ruminate about their spouse and how yucky they are and and and, and whatnot, and that creates a negative feeling. As you think, so you are, and and it moves you in that direction. This is what kingdom faith is all about. So for example, when I when I pray for somebody, it applies to all of our life, because we're always doing this, but it applies to kingdom activity. When I pray for somebody, I, I, I encourage you to envision them being healed if you're praying for sickness. Uh, pray, you, you pray and you imagine them concretely as a hoopostasis in color as co- vividly as you can. See, you're envisioning God's will for them, right? At least you believe this is God's will for them and you're partnering with God to push in that kingdom direction. And and so you envision them getting out of the wheelchair or you envision the cancer being gone or you envision their marriage being healed if that's what you're praying for or you envision the headache going away or whatever it is you're praying for. You get a picture of that. It creates, if you're a kingdom person, it creates a yes-ness in your in your spirit and that moves you in that direction. You go, yes! And you're grabbing it. You're pulling a future hope into a present reality, you see? And that's what faith is all about. That's, I think, what Jesus is getting at in a hyperbolic kind of way when he says, when you ask, believe you have received, and it will be done for you. See it as though you've received it. Imagine as as, as, as though you've received it, as though it's a done reality. And see, so you're pushing for that. Uh, I a week ago, prayed for a person who is um, struggling with, with insomnia really bad. And I don't think it's God's will for a person to have insomnia and always be tired. So uh, pray for this person. And I just envision them falling fast asleep they're sleeping in their bed they're smiling they're so restful and they're just in god's presence and see i'm agreeing with god about this yes god and i'm aligning my mind with god okay by getting a picture of his will and then my heart gets aligned with his heart as i get a yesness to this and then my 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 prayer my life comes into alignment with his will as i now i'm praying in that direction that's what the kingdom is all about We're to live and to pray that God's will gets done on earth as it is in heaven. And it starts by seeing his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And then by feeling his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And then by pushing for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And according to your faith, be it unto you. According to your faith, be it unto you. That's how things in the kingdom get done. And was I certain this person would be healed? No. I know that when the kingdom comes, there won't be any people suffering from insomnia. So someday they should be healed. But I can't know that. And I don't need to pretend that I know that. I don't need to do a mental trick because then I'm certain it's going to happen. No, I don't know that. They say, so you don't need to know that. I do know that in, when it, there is no wasted prayer in the kingdom. Every prayer you pray is powerful and effective. James 5.16, take that on faith. And so you're bringing the kingdom into the situation. Uh, and and uh, But whether or not it's going to have the effect that you're praying for, who can know that? Who can know that? But you push in that direction. That's what kingdom faith is all about. And we do it all the time. Our life is, is structured like that. Everything, everything you feel and everything you do reflects the faith that you have. You can't get on an airplane without having faith. Everything you do, you see it, you feel it, you move that way. It's it's the engine that that drives our ship, for better or for worse. Uh, We always have these tapes and soundtracks going on in our minds, but most people are completely unaware of it. Most people aren't aware of the the faith world, the all-important faith world between their ears. And so then what happens is because they're unaware of it, they end up just inheriting their faith from the world. Um, this is why people, uh, incidentally, blame circumstances for how they feel about things. All of our feelings are actually associated with the movies and soundtracks in our head. But if you're not aware of that, then you will blame the outside circumstances for the way you feel when, in fact, you're doing it in your own head. It's a function of your faith. And if you don't, aren't aware of, of, of your faith world, the movies and, and the tapes that you run in your head, then what happens is you just... Go on autopilot and you just absorb faith from the world. The way that you were raised, the things that were done to you, the things that were said to you, the experiences that you've had. Go into uh, downloading certain files and videos and tapes and soundtracks. And then under the right circumstances, you get triggered and you just play those things. And you're not even aware that you're playing those things, but you do feel the emotion. You feel the emotion and so your life goes in a, in a certain direction. We're always doing this, inheriting our faith from the world. This is what Paul calls the pattern of this world. And while it's normal for people in the natural world to just inherit their identity, because that's what your faith is, your identity and your destiny, but for a child of God, only God has the right to tell you your identity and to give you your destiny. We're to be programmed by no one. Uh, that pattern of the world is a pattern of lies. I've called it the matrix in, in my book, Escaping the Matrix, uh, where there's this, we're imprisoned to the lies that we've internalized in our head, the false faith that we're doing. But Paul says it's the job of a kingdom person to wake up to to the stuff that's going on in your mind and to get free from it. And so he says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will prove what is God's good and acceptable and perfect will. This is how you get free. It's, It's about waking up to the lies that are in your mind, the false faith, the tapes that you're running that don't align themselves with God's word. And then you renew your mind. That means to go over it again and again and again. You take truth, the truth about what God says about who he is and about who you are and about every other person. And, and you now intentionally make tapes and, and, and files and soundtracks about them. Imagine God's will for them. And uh, as you do that, as you renew your mind over and over again, you're transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. You take on his likeness. Your life moves into that, that direction. According to your faith being unto you. And the more that happens, the more you, you, you prove for yourself what is God's good and perfect and acceptable will. That, that, that the term, uh it, it has a connotation of experience for yourself. Experience for yourself. So as I align my mind with God's mind, and I see it as a hypostasis, as a concrete reality, about any particular area of my life, I see it as a hypostasis. It creates an elencos, a elenchos, that, that, uh, feeling. And then I move in this direction, and now my life begins to... Uh, act gets aligned with God's will in my action. And the more we do that, the more we prove for ourselves, find out for ourselves what is God's will for us. Uh, You experience it because it's part of your reality and it's always, praise God, good. It's always acceptable and it's always perfect. Amen. And now we're bringing about God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, I've got time for a couple questions. Uh, What do we got here? What do we have? If knowing God is so important, then why doesn't God make it easier to know the truth? Couldn't God clear some things up for us and help us out? (laughs) Give us a hand here, God, please. Uh, Good question, good question. Um, You know, the first thing I'd say is this, that um, whenever I'm dealing with a question like this, I first have to humble myself because um, I don't get to set the rules. You know, I I maybe wish I could, but I don't. I have to deal with reality as I find it. Um, And... uh, and so I, it's, it's okay to ask questions like this, but at the end of the day, um, we're little human beings and God is God, and at some point you've got to say, well, you know, this is just the way it is, and maybe we'll find out later on. Uh, so that would be the first point I make. The second point I make is, is uh, this, that some of the fogginess between us and God is the result of the world being fallen on the one hand, and the result of sin in our life on the other, and the result of all sorts of, of uh, brain damage that we have, because we all have brain damage. Uh, you know, we've, been, we, we've, we've internalized lies. And so we are in the fog of war, if you've ever heard that expression. We're in a war zone, and there, there's a lot of fogginess that's there. Um, and some of it's because of the interference of principalities and powers, and some of it's because of the pollution in our own brain or the sin in our own life. Uh, I'm sure that when all that is gone, uh, things are going to be much more obvious than they now are. But a third thing is this, that, that God... Um, he'll use that fog. He didn't will that fog to be there, but now that it is there, he uses it. And here's one of the ways he uses it. He wants us to seek him. He says, seek and you shall find. He wants a bride who pursues him um, and uh, is, is willing to work for stuff. So it's not just all obvious. I mean, and this is itself is, is, is a manifestation of faith. And this is what Jesus said. He talked in parables so that people would, would you know, those who don't who who are, whose eye, whose hearts are blind they're not going to get it. But those who have a heart for it are going to pursue it and ask questions. And so sometimes God is up there saying, "Come on, you know, push, push." This is, I think, one of the things that I, I think one of the aspects of modern contemporary Western, especially American Christianity, is that a lot of preachers, because we have a consumer model of the church, they think it's their job to make everything absolutely easy. And so they never want to go deep with stuff and make people wrestle with stuff or challenge stuff or question stuff because some people get upset when you do that. And it's like I've been told, you know, my life's hard enough. I don't want to come to church and have you, you know, making my head exhausted. I I, I just want some encouragement. Um, Well, see, I I think part of the job of the bride is that we're supposed to work. We're supposed to wrestle with stuff and challenge stuff and and question stuff. Um, He wants a bride who, who pursues him. And um, so he uses that fog there uh, for that purpose. The other thing, the final thing, I'll say about it is: is this that um, you know there were times in the Bible where God did sort of just cut through the fog and make Himself pretty obvious. Uh, and we always say, you know, gosh, if only I had it like that. If only God, if only I saw a burning bush talk to me. If only I had the pillar of fire, you know, leading you know, me. If only the voice spoke from heaven, "This is my beloved Son." Well, then, duh, then I believe. But what's interesting is that people didn't. Or sometimes it would have a, a uh, an initial awe kind of impression, but in time, it fades away. Um, it just doesn't do much. It's not solid enough. I know in my own life, you know, I, I've had a few experiences that were just overtly supernatural. But over time, it almost takes faith to keep believing that it actually happens. As I look back on it. It's like, I don't know, it loses its impact or something. And... Um, and so the obvious method showing up doesn't really... It, there's always a way, if our, heart, if our heart isn't open to God, there's always a counter-explanation. You know, the Pharisees heard the father say, this is my beloved son from, from the skies. And uh, they started saying to each other, did it thunder? Did I hear thunder? Yeah, thunder always says, this is my beloved son. I've seen that a lot of times, no problem. <laughs> there's always counter-explanations. I, I think that, that, that uh, the world is in this fog of war, Things are clear enough so that those who want to believe have justified reason for believing. While those who don't want to believe have justified reasons for not doing it. Uh, it, it comes down to our free will. God's not going to be so obvious that's coercive. coercive. Okay? It, it wouldn't work. Um, no, he, he wants... He's just enough obvious that so we can see if we want to see, but we don't see if we don't want to see. And then if we do see, then he wants us to pursue him and, and work through uh, uh, some of the fogginess to grow. Excellent question. Second one: How should I increase my faith if I don't have an active imagination to concretely imagine future things? Oh wow, that's really good. Um, I I bet. I, okay, I, I I bet you do have an active imagination. It just be it might be that you're not visual. Um, but that you have something going on. Like for example, right now, if I if I uh, ask you all to uh, right now think about, think about uh, something good that is going to happen or could happen in the near future. Just think about that. And then I want to ask the question, how do you know that you're thinking about that? Uh, you may think about a vacation or a job promotion or a date you're going to go on or something positive. Um, if you... If you feel any excitement, and I'm saying this to the person who asked this question, have you ever been excited about anything in the future? And I'm thinking you probably have, and if you have, you only had that because you were seeing or hearing something. Now, maybe you're not visual. Maybe you're more auditory, so you are more in touch with the sounds that you'll hear. Or some people are more kinesthetic. They they register thoughts by their, their feelings, so you enter into feelings. But that's still your imagination. It's still your, we, you couldn't possibly remember anything if you didn't have an imagination, and you couldn't possibly anticipate anything if you didn't have an imagination. In fact, you couldn't think. Yeah, to, for you right now to think about anything that's not right in front of you, think about a loved one who's not right in front of you right now. Uh, you're, you're imagining them. Now maybe it's visual, or maybe it's more auditory, or maybe it's more kinesthetic. But but if you if you can think, and if you can remember, and if you can anticipate, you've got an imagination. And I would just say enter into that, and and uh, uh, magnify it however that looks for you. It'll look different for each one of us. But but uh, put sound to it. Put put, put uh, as much as possible. Think with all five senses. Uh, try to add to. Uh, sight to it. If you, if you don't think in terms of sight, try to add that as best you can. And, and sound as best you can. Uh, whatever it looks like to make it as real-like as possible. And that creates a response in us that uh, uh, is, we're responding as though it was real right in front of us. And that's what moves us and that's what uh, changes us. This actually is, it's a neurological fact we now know from neurology. That the way we think is by reactivating the same, roughly the same neural nets. You know, the brain's a network of neurons popping on one another. And every experience we have is registered as a certain way of popping. And when we think about that thing, when we're not in the, in the midst of it, we pop the same neurons, basically. We replicate our reality on the outside. By by doing it on the inside, and that's, that's what it is to think. We don't think with information. We think by replicating reality. So when you remember something, you're popping the same neuronets roughly as you were popping when you had that experience. And the more of that you can pop, the more it feels real to you in the present. So also when you think about the future, you're popping neurons, the neurons that you anticipate being popped when you get there. So faith is about popping neurons, man. Just pop those neurons, pop them loud, pop them good. Pop them with all five senses. All right, your head's going to pop if I keep on talking. All right, that's faith, that's faith. It's honesty, it's, it's raw, it's real, it's not pretending, it's not a gimmick, it's not talking yourself into things, it's not suppressing doubt, it's not being afraid of questions. No, it's, 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 it's uh, about seeing the will of God as a hypostasis, a concrete reality in our head, and then moving towards it in faith. You don't need to be certain about that, you just need to be confident enough to step out and obedience, uh, obey the Lord. What if I move forward in faith, but the prayer isn't answered? How do I avoid feeling like Charlie Brown when Lucy pulls the football away? <laughs> you know, even when he flies up, ooh, boom. Okay, uh, brother or sister, let me tell you this. Um, see, I suspect, I, I suspect you have uh, somewhere along the lines inherited the strength tester model of faith. Um, because... This would, the, 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 you'd only feel flat, or like Lucy, Brown, Lucy pulled the, the, the ball out from under you if you had this expectancy, this idea that you're supposed to be certain that the, prayer, the thing you're praying for is going to be answered. And that's what sets you up for failure. And I understand that, because I've been there, and a lot of us have. Um, and it's hard to keep going on when you just don't see the outcome of your prayer. Because you talk yourself into being certain it's going to happen, and it doesn't. You talk yourself into being certain it's going to happen, and it doesn't. After a while, it's it very hard to try to talk yourself into being certain. What I'm suggesting here is an entirely different way of thinking about faith. The way you move forward in faith is by envisioning what it is you're praying about as though you already received it. I think that's what Jesus is getting at in Mark 11. And you up front can say, I don't know if this is going to be answered. I, I, I don't know. What, I know it will make a difference. But I... We don't know enough about why one prayer is answered in one time and not another time. It's not just that God's going eeny, meeny, miny, mo. No, there's a lot of variables going back to the beginning of time that affect what comes to pass in this world, including what comes to pass as a result of our prayer. So if we're aware of that, then we don't set ourselves up for failure by thinking we got to convince ourselves that we know that it's, the prayer is going to be answered when we're praying it. I, I, up front will tell you, I don't know. So there's no ball to kick out from under me. It's a success, whatever happens, because I know I'm bringing the kingdom. I'm doing all I can do to bring the kingdom into, into this person's life by envisioning that which I'm praying for as though it's a present reality. And keep on pushing, keep on pushing. So I, I encourage you just to define success as obeying the Lord and having the exercising the kind of faith he tells us to have. And it doesn't depend on particular outcomes. You just keep on moving forward. Amen. i uh, another question. What is the difference between envisioning a future not seen and convincing our, ourselves of what we believe? Aren't both mental gimmicks? Hmm, let me join this. That's a very good question. I you guys, this is a smart church. You guys ask good questions. I, I love this. This is like, a, all right, all right, bring it on. What's the difference between envisioning the future not seen and convincing ourselves of what we believe? When you envision a future not seen, leave it up here a little bit, because i want to keep going back to that. Um, when you envision a future not seen, you're not trying to convince yourself you're right about anything. See, I was against the idea that you're supposed to take a belief, whatever you learn, and then you try to just convince yourself of it uh, because you think salvation hangs on it or something. I'm not asking you to do that about the future. To envision the future is not to convince yourself of anything. It's just to envision the future. It's no different than if I say right now, think about one happy thing that you hope to happen in the next five days, next week. Envision that. well, you just did what I'm asking. There's a kind of faith that you're exercising there. Uh, you know, there's no gimmick here. This is how you think. If you, if I ask you to remember a happy event or a sad event or whatever, uh, you're using your imagination. That's how you think. If I ask you to anticipate a future event, that's how you 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 anticipate. Faith is just the the hypostasis of things hoped for, and then the leg cost of, of what you don't see, and. Uh, and so there's a world of difference here. It's not a mental gimmick. It's just how we do faith. And Jesus is just saying, when it comes to the Father's will, Abba's will, do it intensely. Do it passionately. Get it, get it, make it concrete as though it's already there. And uh, move forward with that. Thanks. Great question. Another one. Got any others? Why don't we see more healings either at Willow Hills Church or in general? It seems like it was a regular occurrence in the early church. When did this change? Man. He's <laughs> killing me meal here. You see, uh, is your life faith? We've got to be able to ask everything. I mean, you got to put it out there. Um, and that means we don't get life by having the right answers. Uh, or think we have all the answers. Uh, we get all life from Jesus Christ alone. And that frees us, to be honest, with questions. So I appreciate the, the gutsy questions. And um, so let's move on to the next one now. <laughs> you know what? Okay, I'll be honest with you. This, this question hits uh one of the areas where i have um in the past not so much right now but i i have i've started some through some discouragement with this because everything in my theology says we ought to be seeing a manifestation of the kingdom on the physical realm uh there's nothing in the new testament that indicates that miracles were supposed to stop and uh uh and, and so i it, it, it's, it's bugged me it's honestly bugged me a lot sometimes where i get um so I'll say this about it. Here's where I'm at. It was, it was everywhere in the ministry of Jesus and in the early church. Uh, we see that the, the miracles and the healings begin to die out around in the 2nd century. People start noticing that. And by the end of the 2nd century, you even find some theologians starting to theologize about why that is the case. Um, Origen starts to you know, speculate about why there's not as many miracles now as there was. By the time you get to the 4th century... You find Augustine being the first one to uh, suggest that maybe it was only supposed to be for the early church. Uh, first dispensationalist. The dispensationalist is the one who said that, that was all for a different disp- dispensation. Although, then Augustine, towards the end of his life, uh, he was a bishop over, uh, over Hippo in Africa, not over A Hippo, but this place called Hippo. <laughs> Hippo, I'm your bishop. <laughs> you too, rhinoceros. Uh, no, it, it, he was uh, a bishop, and a town under his jurisdiction had an outbreaking of miracles. All of a sudden, all, a bunch of people got healed, and and even some folks who were the, the dead were raised. And so it convinced him that his, he was wrong. I guess miracles are still happening, but here, here's how I think about it. I, I, this is the only this is how I envision it, and it's um, uh, if it works fine. If it doesn't, then think of something better. But if you look at history, that's what you do. You find that. There are miracles and, and healings and stuff. They, they, they come in pockets almost always. There's an outbreak in early church. You had a lot of it going on. less lasted for about a century. But then it stopped. And then you have revivals happening throughout history. Sometimes centered around one person. Sometimes they're on a movement. Um, you know, but, but it, sometimes they last for a week. Sometimes they last for, for a couple years. But they eventually fade away. And I get the picture in my mind that it's something like this. I don't think it's, it's just thing. I don't think it's just because we're, we lack faith. I don't think it's that. Um, there's other things going on. That is one variable, perhaps. But we have to understand that we're in a world that is oppressed by spiritual powers, like a cloud around the earth. I picture God's 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 power and God's kingdom is like the light of the sun. And our earth is under this dark, heavy cloud of demonic oppression. And once in a while, for reasons that are far too complex, going back to the beginning of time that we can never know, we're able to punch a hole in the cloud. So the sun shines through, the Sun's always breaking through and getting people saved and stuff, but it seems like it takes more sun to break through to see healings and stuff like that. Uh, and once in a while, we're able to punch a hole in, in those clouds. And the sun breaks through and there's an outbreak of revival. Uh, and, but eventually, the, 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 the hole gets covered up again. And then, a century later or a year later, whenever, another hole gets punched. Uh, it, it, the cloud's not equal all over the earth. You go to some third world countries and they do see more miracles than we have here today. And, and some of it's maybe because they have uh, more faith, but some of it maybe has to do with things that we can't ever begin to realize because it's too complex. It's in the spiritual realm going back to the beginning of history. And so we just got to accept it for what it is. Uh, bottom line is, I, I, I don't know why it happens the way it does. One gal I just talked to a couple of years ago, she was a doctor in uh, Mozambique, and they, they always pray for people, but they also practice medicine when they go to these tribes out in the bush, what they call it, in the bush. And... and uh, uh, then once in a while we'll see a little miracle here and there. But they came to this one town, this little village out in the bush, and this guy got uh, healed. His eyesight got healed. He turned out to be the witch doctor of the whole village. And so he gave his heart to Christ. And then for the next week, she said, everything they prayed for got healed. goiters disappeared. It, it was incredible. Uh, it lasted about five days. And then, boom, it stopped. And then they went back to business as usual. Uh, it, it's just... So in my mind... Here's how I think about it. Is that I that's an idea I have. I think there's something like that is going on, but it doesn't affect at all how I'm going to how I'm going to live. I am going to I, I take my marching orders from the Word, not from my experience. And so I'm just going to keep plowing that way. I'm going to keep envisioning healings happening. I'm going to keep pressing that way. Amen. I encourage you to be doing the same. You just keep plowing. You just keep plowing. And I, I don't get into indictment blaming yourself. Oh, we must really suck as Christians because no healings happen. You know, I've been there too. And I it's, it's, it's not productive. It's not productive. No, you know, have, see it as vividly as you can. Press towards it. And who knows? Maybe one of these days we're going to start seeing a lot of stuff happening. Uh, In the meantime, we just keep plowing forward. Having said that, I'd like to ask my prayer teams to come up here, and if you're here this morning and have any needs whatsoever, uh, I'd encourage you to pray with these folks, including physical needs. Oh, let's just be envisioning. I want to encourage our prayer teams to be envisioning the healings happening and pressing towards that. That's what faith is all about, Just envision that. Uh, I want to instruct our prayer teams to follow Jesus' example in all respects, except spitting. I don't want anyone to be spit on here. I don't care if you're blind, we're not going to spit on you. Uh, So... uh, Come forward if you have any need whatsoever. So, Abba Father, we just thank you for the freedom that we have to be honest and to explore issues. And, uh, God, we thank you that you invite us to partner with you to bring about your will on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray, God, you give us faith, increase our faith to see uh, to see your will being done on earth as it is in heaven to long for your will being done on earth as it is in heaven, and then to be bold and pushing towards your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And God, I pray as we go out of here, Holy Spirit, will you remind us to be paying attention to the pictures that, and the images and the sounds that we run in our mind about other people and how some of those are not consistent with the kingdom and help us to be rooting out lies and downloading truth that our minds would be taken captive every thought for Jesus Christ. That our hearts would then be brought in alignment with you and our life would then be uh, lived in faith. According to our faith, be it unto us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have faith. Go out and build the kingdom.